Open God's holy word to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 23. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his will. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares Yahweh. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, That is in vain. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? Therefore, thus says Yahweh, Ask among the nations, Who has heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry of the the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads. And to walk into side roads, not the highway. Making their land a whore. A thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes his head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. Then they said, Come, let us make plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue. Let us not pay attention to any of his words. Hear me, O Yahweh. And listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil, yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them. 
for they have dug a pit to take me and have laid snares for my feet. Yet you, O Yahweh, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, You are the potter. We are the clay. You are sovereign, having all authority and all power. You may do with us as You please. We are unworthy sinners deserving only of an eternal hell. But for the name and glory of Christ, we would plead Your mercy on us this morning and turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. May we respond to Your Word, not as we see Israel doing here. May we not be hardened clay to be destroyed, but soft clay, yielding clay, humble clay in the hands of our gracious Master. In the name of Jesus I pray, Amen. Michael Horton has written, We can talk about grace, sing about grace, preach about grace, just so long as we don't get too close to it. Election is too close. A source of this tributary, this river of which Horton has just written, is this. We can talk about God's sovereignty, sing about God's sovereignty, preach about God's sovereignty, just so long as we don't get too close. God's salvation, sovereignty in salvation and damnation is too close. Here we have what is perhaps Scripture's most potent metaphor for God's absolute sovereignty over man. I think the reason that it discomforts us so is while it assumes power, it emphasizes authority. We're okay with the opposite. We'll glory in our God being all-powerful. It's what He has the authority to do with that power that terrifies us. God has sovereign power. That's assumed here. The clay is in His hands. But He also has sovereign authority. That's what's emphasized. He may do with the clay as He pleases. Another reason why this metaphor perhaps causes us to squirm is that it is perhaps the least metaphorical of metaphors we encounter in the Scriptures. It's that piece of fiction that's too true for our enjoyment. Like whenever the Pharisees were present and Jesus told the parable and they knew it was about them. In Genesis 2-7 we're told that God formed Man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. The word that you have for potter in our text is a derivative of the word you have as formed in Genesis 2-7. Yes, it's anthropomorphic language that's being used in Genesis 2-7, but that doesn't make it any less true. We are dust. We are the marvel, Horton says, of ensouled dust. 
after Adam fell, God told them, you are dust, and to dust you shall return, Genesis 3.19. So we are dust. We are God's dust. He may destroy us. He may make us new. He has not only the power to do so, He has the authority. He's sovereign. Job, though he recognized this truth, appears to complain of it in his pain, saying, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and you will return me to the dust. Even those who own the truth of this metaphor can express it with misgiving in the midst of their misery. In 1930, 1930, Arthur Pink wrote The Sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the Godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand or say to Him, What doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth Him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. And then he asks, how different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom? The conception of deity which prevails most widely today, even among those who profess to give heed to the Scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of the truth. The God of the 20th century is a helpless, effeminate being who commands the respect of no really thoughtful man. The God of the popular mind is the creation of a maudlin sentimentality. The God of many a present-day pulpit is an object of pity rather than awe-inspiring reverence. To say that God the Father has purposed the salvation of all mankind, that God the Son died with the express intent of saving the whole human race, and that God the Holy Spirit is now seeking to win the world to Christ when as a matter of common observation, it is apparent that the great majority of our fellow men are dying in sin and passing into a hopeless eternity, is to say that the Father is disappointed, that the Son is dissatisfied, and that the God the Holy Spirit is defeated. What would he say? He wrote that in the 30s. What would he think of the God of evangelicalism today? Longing for a relationship, desperate for us, wooing us earnestly, heartbroken over our rejection. Why would we ever make such a trade? I believe the answer is as old as the garden. If God is God, we are not. And so we swallow a lie to deny the truth. Getting into our text, in the last section, you remember Jeremiah received a word of command. 
and the word he received was a word of command. He received a word of command to speak, and what he was to speak was a word of command to the nation. Well, in verses 1 and 2, Jeremiah receives a word of command, but this time it's a word to hear. So in chapter 17 and verse 19, Jeremiah was told to go, stand, and say, and here he is to arise, go, and hear. In chapter 17, he's to go somewhere to speak. In this instance, he's to go somewhere to hear. The place where Jeremiah obediently goes is, verses 3 and 4, the potter's house. And with this, you may recall those instances of enacted prophecy that we've seen earlier in our study. So there was that instance of the spoiled loincloth, and then you had that time whenever he was commanded not to take a wife and have a family. And so you might think that something like that's happening again, but this is different. This is not an act that Jeremiah does. This is an act that Jeremiah observes. It's more like those visions that Jeremiah has in chapter 1 of the almond tree or the boiling pot. This is not an act that the prophet does accompanying his declaring of the word. This is an act the prophet observes accompany his receiving the word. And the act is a most ordinary one. The prophet's not received any kind of revelation. He's just in God's providence going about his business, being observed by the prophet. He throws the clay. The vessel that he's making is spoiled. The clay is not up to the intent of the potter. And so he makes another vessel according to his desire, as he thinks good. Now, contrary to many charismatics today, God does not leave such pictures uninterpreted. He doesn't let you determine what you think they mean. Oh, I had this vision of X, and, and, and then you're left to determine. No, when God gives such visions, he interprets them, he explains them. It's following this, seeing this, Jeremiah receives the word that he was promised, verse 5. And the word that he receives is one that he's going to speak. The audience addressed will be, verse 6, the house of Israel. And God asks, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Now, God isn't second-guessing. Can I, can I do with you like this potter? He isn't, this isn't, uh, he's not asking permission. And that's clear because he immediately answers, behold... Like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, do you see with this that what's being assumed is power, but what's being emphasized is authority. He can do with her as he pleases, as seems good to him. Indeed, God's rights are greater because whenever the potter makes the pot, he's borrowing God's dirt. We are God's dirt. Isaiah recognized this and he prayed, But now, O Yahweh, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, and we are, we are all your people. The truth of the situation is not simply that we're dust, but we are defiled dust, deserving of nothing but a shattering and a breaking. A powerful man can be subdued by a higher authority. 
But whenever it comes to God, we encounter one who not only has all power, he has all authority. The psalmist sings, Our God is in the heavens, He does as He pleases. He has all power, He has all authority, He does as He pleases. And as Job found out, when we want to argue that, we will soon, we will ultimately find our hands over our mouths. Concerning the divine potter doing as he pleases with Israel, he posits two scenarios. In both of them, a declaration is made by God, and then there's a response to that declaration. And because of that response, God relents of what He has declared concerning that nation or kingdom. So first, if He declares destruction concerning a nation, to pluck it up, to break it down and destroy it, and that nation repents, God says He will relent of the disaster He intended to do it, verses 7 through 8. This is exactly what happens when Jonah preaches to Nineveh. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Second scenario, God declares that He will build and plant a nation. And that nation does evil in His sight, not listening to His word. God says He will relent of the, of the good he intended to do, verses 9 through 10. Now let's make clear what should be an obviously bad reading of the text. Yet it's a reading that our false and wicked hearts love to spin on this. The bad reading is to think that God is simply reacting to man. That man is in the driver's seat. God may say one thing, but if you act in a certain way, if you know how to pull his strings, you can get him to do the opposite. We may confess that God is Father, but we like to think we're such a cute kid, we can crawl up in his lap and get him to do whatever we want him to do. And this is completely contrary to the sense of the question as Yahweh puts it to his people. Can I not do with you as this potter has done? We're too quick to forget that in these scenarios... God not only shapes the clay, He makes the clay. He mixes the clay. The clay is what it is because of Him, His doing. We cannot flip the rolls. We cannot play potter and make God our clay. In Isaiah, God rebukes His people saying, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? The thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. No, anyone who thinks otherwise is cursed, Isaiah 45, 9-10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? The, the ultimate death knell of any such understanding of this metaphor comes in Romans 9. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The point of this metaphor is not that God is simply sovereign over what happens to the clay, He is sovereign over what the clay is. He's sovereign over what the clay is, what it becomes, and what becomes of it. Over all of this, He is Lord. And yet, you cannot avoid this implication from the text. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. God is sovereign over man's actions. And man is responsible for his actions. And before you think this is contradictory, understand this. Scripture is never bashful when the two walk holding hands side by side. She doesn't blush when divine sovereignty and human responsibility kiss and they kiss again and again throughout the Scriptures. She does not blush. For instance, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. They were responsible for evil. And God was sovereign over it for good. Or there is this supreme fact that demonstrates that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not at odds. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter preached, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was all God's sovereign will, and as he intended it, it was good, And it was a vile, sinful act of man for which they are held responsible. Even so, does not our text say that God will relent? Yes, but let's be clear what God is saying. God does not say that if He declares destruction concerning a nation, and that nation doesn't repent, He might decide not to destroy it. That would be a real change in the God who has revealed Himself to be a God of justice. God does not say that if He declares good of a nation, and that nation hears His voice, listens to His voice, that then He'll decide to destroy her anyway. That would be a real change in the God who's declared Himself to be gracious and faithful and true. He doesn't say that if he declares destruction and the nation repents, he might still destroy her. Or if he declares good and that nation is faithful, he will do her no good. What you see in these scenarios are not changes in God. They're changes in the situation. They're changes in man. 
Our God is immutable. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The scenarios tell us not only that God acts sovereignly, but that He acts justly. That's one purpose of these illustrations. But further, what these scenarios tell us in, as they're coupled with this metaphor isn't simply that the situation has changed, but that God has changed it. He's Lord over it. He's unchanging. He changes men. He shapes them as clay. He's made one nation to heed His warning. In grace and mercy, they heed His warning of judgment. And He's made another to be given over to their own ways, their desires of their own hearts, so that they're hardened in their rebellion and sin. Despite the word of grace He's pronounced over them. Now from... The theological principle, he's the potter, we're the clay, to these scenarios, these theoretical scenarios, we have the application in verse 11. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says Yahweh, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your evil ways and your deeds. Now if you bristle against this so far, I want you to understand, you're the very kind of person that's being addressed by our text. You find yourself in the place of Israel asking, He did not make me. He has no understanding. What are you making? Why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? Why have you made me like this? The truth of divine sovereignty, I want you to see, is meant to cause your responsibility to land heavy on your shoulders. That's where it's come to at this point. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your evil ways and deeds. If you still think these cannot be put together, understand this. Responsibility assumes authority. The reason we're responsible is because there is an authority. And if you are ultimately responsible, it means there is an ultimate authority. He commands men to repent and promises grace should they do so. The question God asks here, can I not do with you as this potter has done, is not an invitation to debate. It's a question that exposes the state of our hearts. It exposes, is the clay hard or is it soft? Is it proud and hard or yielding and humble? As for Israel, they were the second scenario. He pronounced good upon them and they've rebelled. And now they're in the the, the second scenario. He's pronouncing disaster. And the hope is that they will return from their evil way. Now at this point, We don't know what the potter will do, but we do know what the clay should do. The answer to the question, can he not do with us as he desires? The answer that you give to that question tells us nothing about God. Instead, it tells us about the state of our own hearts. And we've learned this, that hard clay will be destroyed, 
and the soft is so because of His gracious doing. Because left to ourselves, we have hearts of stone. And so the potter has thrown the clay. He's spinning the clay by His word, you see. What's the response of the clay? Verse 12. That is vain. We will follow our own plans. They act according to the stubbornness of their own evil heart. In other words, they're responsible. They're acting according to their own nature, to the way they are. The repercussions of this are first to rebuke, verses 13 through 16. So they protest. This is vain. We will follow our own plans. And they receive this rebuke. Therefore, Yahweh says, ask among the nations. And learn this, you can't turn the tables. Whenever we try to put God in the dock, we will be reminded eventually, He is the judge. We sit in the dock. He is sovereign. He holds us responsible, not we Him. So again, rather than responsibility and authority being contrary, they're, the, the one is dependent on the other. Israel is to ask the nations if anyone has heard the like of this. Israel's behavior is unnatural. It's unreasonable. It's dumbfounding. It perplexes. It's madness. And the, the reason why she's to ask of the nations isn't simply to build a consensus. Do, do you all agree that what she's doing is, is insane? That's not the reason. It's not the simple reason. This goes back to chapter 2 and verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Israel is doing something that the pagan nations don't even do. Consult the nations. Look at the evidence and the testimony. They don't forsake their pagan gods. And here you are. You have the true God and you're leaving Him for those pagan gods. The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. That's teasing this out. What it is she's done that's dumbfounding. It doesn't compute. In chapter 2 and verse 32, God asked, Can a virgin forget her ornaments? Or a bride, her attire, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Betrothed to Yahweh, she has cheated on him with these pagan idols. And so God asked, does, not, does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Syrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing stream? So the forest mountains of Lebanon contained Mount Syrian, also known as Mount Hebron, and they were nearly perpetually always covered with snow. And so this meant there was always this mountain stream, this, this continual source of good water. Do they run dry? No. But Israel has forgotten her God. What she does is unnatural. And so let's go back to chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verse 11, but let's read it with verses 12 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
And so the gods, or their leaders who lead them in idolatry, make them stumble from the ancient road, verse 15. You remember in studying chapter 6, the ancient roads were the good roads. They were the well-traveled roads, they were the safe roads, they were packed down. It was the new roads where there was overgrowth, where you were prone to lose your way. And so they have left God's way, the old way, for the novel, the new. And now as a result, having deviated from these paths, their land is a horror. People are astonished at what has happened to Israel, shaking their heads. And this brings us to the second repercussion. That of expected judgment, verse 17. He will scatter them before their enemy like the the east wind. He will show them his back and not their face. In chapter 2 and verse 27, Yahweh says that Israel turned her back towards him and did not show him their face. Now, God is returning the favor, showing them no favor. Now, whenever they turn their back to God, they don't, they don't bring any damage to God. But now that God has turned His back to them, they will be destroyed. Understand this, we have a jealous God, but His is not the kind of jealousy you can manipulate. His isn't the kind of jealousy you can steer. It's a holy and righteous jealousy that you don't want to play around with. It's a sovereign jealousy. It's not a, it's not a sovereignty or a jealousy to challenge. It's a sovereignty to yield to. Pride rejects it. Humility yields. And so the word of Yahweh that's given in response, the statement of rebuke and the statement of judgment that you have in verses 13 through 17, is one that was no doubt delivered by Jeremiah. And so now, because they can't get their hands around God's neck, they decide to choke the prophet, silence his voice, verse 18. Let us make plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue, and let us not pay attention to any of his words." They find Jeremiah unnecessary. They have plenty of priests. They have plenty of wise men. They have plenty of prophets. They don't need Jeremiah. In chapter, uh, they have plenty of priests, wise men, and prophets who will tell them what they want to hear. So they don't need Jeremiah. In chapter 6, verses 13 through 14, we were told, From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. There's never going to be a shortage of wicked priests, worldly wise men, or false prophets, because the demand for that market is not going to go away until kingdom come. Paul warned Timothy, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So just as this plotting was happening within Israel, Paul is warning Timothy, don't think that just because the future age is in breaking with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the calling out of a new humanity in the church, don't think that just because you're at this stage in the story, that the same kind of plotting isn't going to happen in the church. The objective in this isn't to silence man. It's man that they want to hear. The the object is to silence 
God. And so because they can't get at the judge, they go after his prosecutor, the prophet. Because they can't get at Jesus anymore, having been resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, because they can't get at him anymore, they get at his messengers. They go after his body to silence his mouth. Now it's critical to understand that or you will not get what's happening with Jeremiah's lament. You'll misfire in understanding it. Jeremiah, in response, uh, in light of their response to the word of Yahweh that he's declared, lays his case before Yahweh in Lamentation, verses 19 through 23. What Jeremiah is seeking, I believe, is not vengeance, but justice. Hear me and listen to the voice of my adversaries. He doesn't want an unfair trial. He doesn't want to just use God to pick them off. He's saying, here's the case. Let's, let's come before the judge. Here we are. And he says, they seek to repay good with evil. Jeremiah has shared with them a word of judgment that is not without hope. He shared with them a word of judgment that has this bit of hope in it. And they're returning that good with evil. He's warned them of doom. And he's held out the promise of God's mercy if they would repent. And they want to silence him. He stands before them speaking good. And they want to... uh, He's speaking good. He wants God's wrath to turn away from them. But they want to bring wrath and judgment on Jeremiah. And remember, this is the people that we've seen him weeping over. This is the people that in chapter 8 and verse 21, he said, My heart is wounded for the wound of my people. Most are fine with how Jeremiah's laid the case out so far. This is okay. It's verse 21 where we begin to cringe. Therefore deliver up their children to famine. This is one of those instances where many seek to apologize for the Bible by throwing someone under the bus. In this instance, Jeremiah. Well, here's the thing. Jeremiah is a sinner. We've seen Jeremiah sin. We'll see him sin again. We don't need to start making up instances for Jeremiah to look bad. He looks bad enough on his own. Is he sinning here? One pastor, and a really good one, one that I esteem, writes, Jeremiah went beyond seeking vindication to being vindictive. At least he did not display the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who prayed for his enemies and forgave his executioners. Now some might have insight that I don't that allows them to differentiate between the language Jeremiah uses here and that which we see in many of the Psalms. Or that allows them to differentiate Jesus saying, forgive them for they know not what they do, but then pronouncing, woe to you, Pharisees, you brood of vipers. It would seem to me that the only thing we're allowed with such a interpretation of the Scriptures, the only thing we're allowed to emulate of the prophets and even of our Lord is their niceness. Be nice. Nothing else. But the peculiar thing about what Jeremiah prays for here is that it's nothing that Yahweh has not declared He will bring upon Judah. There's nothing that Jeremiah isn't praying that God hasn't told him to declare. Jeremiah asked that their children be delivered up to famine and given over to the sword. 
chapter 11, verse 22. The men of Anathoth. Concerning them, Yahweh declares, The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And what's particularly striking in chapter 11 is the reason why that judgment is coming upon the men of Anathoth. You remember, that is Jeremiah's hometown. And it's said, Yahweh says, This is concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of Yahweh or you will die by our hand. And it's for that reason that Yahweh says, their sons and daughters shall die. Jeremiah asked that their wives be childless and widowed. You remember chapter 16. God commands Jeremiah, don't take a wife and don't have a family. Why? To make vivid this very judgment. Jeremiah asks that a cry be heard from their houses when they are suddenly plundered. Jeremiah chapter 5. Yahweh says the enemy will eat up their harvest and food, their flocks and their herds, their vines and fig trees. So then comes the retort. Well, it's the motive. It's the grounds upon which Jeremiah is asking this. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me and laid snares for my feet. Is Jeremiah being vindictive? Well, first, notice the pattern. There's a word of judgment from Yahweh. And then Judah responds. Rejecting that word. Yahweh has a word of judgment then upon them. A word of rebuke and judgment in response to their response. And now, in response to that further word of judgment, Judah again rejects it. Let's kill Jeremiah. Let's silence him. But this time, instead of a word of judgment being declared by Yahweh, we have a prayer for judgment. Why is it wrong for Jeremiah to pray for what Yahweh has declared? And the reason remains the same. They've rejected the word, thus judgment. They've rejected the word. So Jeremiah prays for judgment. In both instances, the people are shown to be hard clay. And God has revealed to His prophet His plans for hard clay. Jeremiah is praying that God will be who God has revealed Himself to be. Can we emulate Jeremiah's lament without sin? I don't think we can. But I'm not optimistic that we can emulate his kindness or compassion either without sin. I am certain that my every disobedience, my excuse me, my every obedience is tainted a bit at least. By some measure of sin. That doesn't excuse me from trying to walk in the right direction. What we should desire is for the word to shape us. 
And that's, believe, I believe, what's happened with Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6, the word of Yahweh. And the expressions of Jeremiah get swirled together in Jeremiah chapter 6. But to begin with, it's clear that the prophet is speaking concerning himself. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. Why can't they hear? Because God has not done a circumcision of the heart, of the ear. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of Yahweh is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of Yahweh. I'm weary of holding it in. And now all of a sudden it switches. Pour it out upon the children of man, uh, uh, children in the street, and upon the gatherings of young men. Also, both the husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Jeremiah 15, verse 7, Jeremiah says, I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. What was the purpose for which God said He rose Jeremiah up? Formed him in the womb for this very purpose. Yahweh put out His hand and touched my mouth. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Remember in our text how God spoke of those nations and He said if He determines to pluck up, break down, destroy, verse 7, or to build and to plant, verse 9. He's told us earlier that's the very purpose for which He rose Jeremiah up. And how does Jeremiah accomplish this? Building and tearing down by declaring the word of God. And, in this instance, by praying the word of God. Jeremiah will see, we've seen before this, we'll see again after this. There are times whenever he pleads for Judah. And there are times whenever he prays against her. Just as there are instances when our Lord commands His people to repent and promises mercy should they do so. And there are instances when He pronounces certain judgment on them. But we want an easy answer that isn't objectionable. We want an answer that won't get us killed. Be nice all the time. Just be nice. Well, indeed, vengeance is Yahweh's. But whenever we see the word of the gospel hated, when we see God's undeserved mercies not just rejected in some light sense, but utterly despised and persecuted and hated such that they want to silence the only good news there is. As we long for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to go to the nations that God might call His elect from every tribe, people, and nation. As we behold these things, we should cry out, Come, 
Lord Jesus. And the import of that prayer is that the fullness of our salvation will come by judgment. When our Lord returns in glory and evil is no more. And we are perfectly conformed by the potter into the image of His Son. May we learn to pray as we're shaped by the Word. God, may you be God. You are the potter. We are the clay. May His Word make us long for both His salvation and His judgment that His glory might be fully revealed. He is sovereign. And we should praise not only His grace and His mercy, but His justice and His righteousness. He is the potter. We are the clay. May we yield and be molded by the potter's word into the potter's image to exclaim that the potter is holy. He's just. He's good. And He's glorious in all that He does. The potter's sovereignty once troubled a young Jonathan Edwards. And looking back on that time, he wrote, From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of God and His justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to His sovereign pleasure. But I never could give an account of how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time nor a long time after that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it. But only that I now saw further And my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it, and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from this that day to this, so that I can scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense. In God showing mercy to whom He will, show mercy in hardening whom He will. God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. But I've often, since that first conviction, had quite another sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. I've often since not only had a conviction but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction, he says, was not so. Before we ever apply this text to others, let's apply it to ourselves. He is the potter. You are the clay. 
How does that sit with your heart? By God's grace, may we exclaim as the Apostle Paul did after having reflected on these things for three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, may we answer as Paul did upon reflecting upon them. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. He is the potter. We are the clay. The astounding thing, saints, is we only deserve to be shattered by His wrath. But He has filled these earthen vessels with the treasure of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ. Conforming us to the image of a Son that we might know and glorify Him forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy when we sinners. Forgive us when our hearts are hard against your word. In grace, soften them and leave us not to ourselves in the judgment we deserve. And save souls. Fathers, we share this good news. Save souls, have mercy, and give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone to hear your word, circumcise their ears. And Lord, We proclaim that you are good in all that you do. We long that you magnify your name and pray, come Lord Jesus. In his name, amen.